Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies, I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. (laughs) (laughs) I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show is absolutely incredible. Or anime. And under this mask is another mask. (laughs) You can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts, and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Boldly going where no science show has gone before. The Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to this week's Naked Scientist with Kat Arnie. Hello, Kat. Hello. And I'm Chris Smith. Now, coming up this week, lungs with taste buds. Yes, you'd bitter believe it. Scientists have discovered that our lungs are also sensitive to flavours. But why should that be? Well, we'll find out shortly. Also, why an earthquake in China has seriously shaken up the world of panda conservation could spell disaster. And also, why do those beautifully regular-shaped ridges and valleys that we see out there in nature actually come from? Scientists have sussed out how they form, and we'll hear how in just a second. Thanks, Chris. Also this week, we have a rubbish show for you, quite literally. Every day, the people of the UK alone, and that's just 70 million of us, throw away about 1 million tonnes of rubbish. Come on, people. Lots of it ends up in landfills where it turns into greenhouse gases like methane and CO2. But wouldn't it be better to try and turn that waste into something useful, like fuel, for instance? And that's exactly what this uh, this week's guests are trying to do. We'll be finding out how scientists are developing ways to produce chemical treasure from trash in the form of secondary fuels and new plastics. But can it all really make a difference? We'll find out shortly. Thank you very much, Kat. And if you're in the mood for a little bit of hands-on recycling, in this week's Kitchen Science, Ben and Dave will show you how you can make some paper from what you would have thrown away. In the meantime, if you'd like to get in touch with us here at The Naked Scientist, the email address for the programme is chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net. Now, here's some sad news for pandas. Um, Our listeners may remember the massive earthquake measuring eight on the Richter scale that struck the Sichuan region of southern China back in May 2008. Now, not only did it leave around 4.3 million people homeless and and killed uh, many thousands of people, but a new study shows it also means bad news for the few remaining giant pandas living in the wild. So why is it affecting them? Well, this is research from Wei Hua Zhu in Beijing, who publishes uh, his results in the journal Frontiers in Ecology and the Environment this week. Now, the scientists carried out a survey of the habitat of giant pandas living in the south Minshan region of China. This was right next to the epicentre of the earthquake. And they compared what it was like and what the habitats for pandas were like before and after the earthquake. And presumably what you're going to say is that it made some kind of impact. Um, some kind of impact is, is pretty much an understatement. The researchers found that nearly a quarter of the panda habitat in this area had been completely destroyed and much of the rest of it was really fragmented and damaged. Now, this is almost as bad as destroying the habitat because it greatly increases the chances of pandas becoming extinct by breaking up their population, destroying breeding and feeding sites. And as we know, pandas aren't terribly good at the old breeding to start with. Now, Zhu thinks that up to 60% of the wild giant panda population may have been affected in some way by by this earthquake and really there's only you know uh, hundreds maybe a, a thousand or so wild giant pandas left in the world so this is pretty bad news so it could potentially push them over the extinction threshold which is a worry um is it unrescuable though is there anything we can do to reverse the problem well now we know this problem is here the researchers think that one good idea might be to develop specially protected corridors between these remaining habitats and they would encourage pandas to move between these patches of land that are left and because a lot of the earthquake damage actually happened in areas outside panda reserves they suggest that these areas outside reserves should maybe become reserves as well and of course they ask that towns and cities that are rebuilt to house the homeless do uh, take account of the pandas 
responders and uh, take them into consideration. It just goes to show it's not just humans that are impacted by earthquakes. Thank you, Kat. Anyway, from pandas to lungs, and we're well acquainted with the fact that our tongues are very good at tasting things, but who would have thought that your lungs also potentially have the capacity to taste things? This is a study published in the journal Science this week by Alok Shah and his colleagues, who are based at the University of Iowa. And what they've been doing is, well, they reasoned that the cells that line our lungs may be able to detect or pick up various chemicals that could be dangerous, such as noxious substances like toxins or perhaps even the chemical signals that are given out by bacteria to signal infection. So what they did was to take some cells from the lining of the airways and they did a microarray analysis, a genetic test, to see which genes were turned on in those cells. And one of the families of genes they spotted coming up again and again and again was a family called the T2R receptors. And this family of genes are used in the tongue to detect bitter substances, which suggests that these cilia, tiny hairs that cover the cells that line the airways, cilia are there to help move mucus around, can actually pick up bitter flavours in the air that you breathe in. Now, this sounds just a bit crazy. Why would your lungs want to taste things? Or are they not really tasting them? Are they using these receptors for another purpose? Well, quite. We don't normally put food into our lungs. If you do, you're at danger of getting an aspiration pneumonia, which can be life-threatening. Bad news. So why should your lungs want to be able to taste things? Well, the answer is that the cells that are expressing these receptors... Whenever they see a bitter flavour or a bitter chemical, bitter tasting chemical, they produce a huge surge of calcium inside the cell. And the researchers did experiments in the dish using other bitter chemicals, including one called denatonium. And if you put this in your mouth, it tastes horrible. But basically what this did was to make a big surge of calcium in the cilia, and then all of the cells around the cilia also had a big spike of calcium and became more active. And that what was happening is that there are electrical connections called gap junctions between the cilia and the cells next door. And so the cilia are presumably detecting the presence of these substances on the surface of the airway and then telling all of the cells around the area that there's something that is nasty getting into the airways. And that means that then the lungs could perhaps change their behaviour or increase their defences in order to, say, ward off infection, produce more mucus, for instance, if you've inhaled um, particles of smoke or something and you want to boost the amount of mucus in order to ward off the danger or help to clean the lungs more. It's all very well to sort of say that there's this signalling in response to bitter things. What sort of bitter compounds um, might your lungs encounter during everyday yeah, good life? good point. Well, um, one of the interesting examples they give in their paper is that Pseudomonas aeruginosa, which is a bacterial infection, which is a major problem for people with, with uh, cystic fibrosis, these bacteria produce chemicals called lactones and these are chemicals that the bacteria use to talk to one another. They do something called quorum sensing. When the bacteria reach a certain threshold population, they secrete these chemicals and this massively stimulates the bacteria to grow and increase their numbers. So what the researchers are saying is that this in a normal person could be a way in which they pick up the fact that these bacteria are trying to invade the lung and this boosts lung defences. But in people with cystic fibrosis, perhaps because they have the problem with their mucus being very sticky and they get lots and lots of these bacteria if you overstimulate this system, perhaps it then contributes to the lung damage that you get, and we need to check that one out. But another poisonous and also bitter substance which lungs are frequently um, in contact with is nicotine, because nicotine is a plant alkaloid, and just like caffeine, another plant alkaloid, it tastes bitter. Nicotine, therefore, probably can also stimulate these receptors, and perhaps some of the chronic damage done to the lung by smoking isn't just down to the non-nicotine components of cigarettes, which are frequently the ones blamed for everything. It could be that the nicotine itself is also affecting the physiology and behaviour of these cilia, including the process called metaplasia, where cells eventually lose their cilia and they just become flat squamous epithelial cells, and that's why the lungs of chronic smokers don't clean themselves very well, because the cilia disappear and they can't get rid of the mucus. So, interesting stuff. Um, yeah, very odd finding that. Uh, who'd have thought it? Anyway, now there's uh, some new research published in the journal Nature Medicine today, which suggests suggests that scientists who are working on diabetes could do with cozying up to immunologists as the latest data suggests that the two fields are actually much more closely linked than previously thought. In what respect? Well, these are two papers published by scientists in the US and in the first study, researchers led by Gopu Shing looked at two commonly used allergy medicines called Zadator and Chromalin, which sound like superheroes rather than medicines. But these work by calming down mast cells. These are immune cells in the body that provoke allergic reactions. But they also found, intriguingly, that the drugs could help reduce both obesity and type 2 diabetes in mice. 
seems strange to think that cells linked to allergy and inflammation are also linked to diabetes. It's absolutely fascinating because the researchers found this out by they're looking at fat tissue. They looked at fat tissue from obese and diabetic mice and humans and they found that they had unusually high numbers of these mast cells compared with fat tissue from people with a, a normal weight. But they wanted to find out, was it the fat that was attracting the mast cells or the mast cells helping to trigger excessive deposition mm, of fat? It's a bit chicken and egg, isn't it? So how did they do that? Well, that's what they did. They tested these mast cell controlling drugs on mice that were either given a healthy diet or a so-called cafeteria diet. This is a really fatty, sugary junk food diet for mice. And they found that the drugs helped prevent mice from becoming obese or diabetic, even on a crap diet. Poor diet, sorry. Uh, but although the drugs are used to treat allergies in humans, we don't yet have evidence that they can prevent obesity uh, or diabetes in humans. And you mentioned there was another study. Yes, there's a second paper, and this is uh, research led by Marcus Feuerer. They discovered that a type of immune cell called a regulatory T-cell plays a role in liaising between the immune system and the metabolism, and this helps to keep inflammation in fat tissue in check. Now, they found that fat tissue from obese and diabetic mice and humans has unusually low levels of these good regulatory cells, but high levels of bad immune cells, such as things called macrophages and these mast cells. And they found the complete opposite in fat from animals and humans with a healthy weight. So what's the clinical issue here? Is this going to map onto humans? Are we going to be able to do something about the fact that about one person in three, if we carry on the way we're going, is going to be obese and therefore at risk of these kind of conditions like diabetes soon? Yeah, it's really interesting. Still, It's still early days, um, but it does suggest that inflammation in fatty tissue may play a role in obesity and the development of diabetes. Now, it's also fascinating because we know that being overweight or obese can increase your risk of diseases like cancer and some types of heart disease. And these are two illnesses that are also increasingly linked to inflammation. So perhaps the whole thing's connected. Now, it's really important to stress that popping a few over-the-counter allergy remedies is not going to reverse obesity and magically make you thin, more's the pity. But the results certainly open the door to a whole new area of research, and it's one that the scientists have called immunometabolism, and hopefully this should lead to some really interesting results in years to come. We've also found that getting a good night's sleep is critical to being able to regulate your blood sugar well as well. And people who are having disturbed sleep, like I am, with two small children at home, tend to have worse control of their blood glucose and they're more resistant to their own insulin than people who have a good night's sleep. And paradoxically, sleeping longer actually helps people to lose weight for various reasons. So there you go. Now, if you glance out of the aeroplane window as you're surging, not across the ocean, but across land, how could you have missed those wonderful ridges and valleys you see and note, not failed to notice that they form very regular patterns. It's almost like the teeth of a comb. Why should that be? Is it just a freak of nature, or is there actually a mechanistic reason why it's happening? Well, Dr Taylor Perron, who's a researcher at MIT in America, has got a paper in the journal Nature this week, and he and his colleagues have cracked the reason it happens. Hello, Taylor. Hi, Chris. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. Tell us, why do we see these amazing patterns in nature? Well, we started wondering about this uh, pattern for the same reason that the people you just referred to looking at the airplane window did. Uh, whenever you see a pattern that's this regular and widespread in nature, it's got to be telling you something about the, uh, the physics that are, that are generating it. So we're and talking here about where you see a, a hillside, then a ridge or a river right between it, then another hillside and so on, and you get that beautiful repeating pattern. That's right. It's been recognized by geologists uh, for more than a century, that there is this very even spacing among rivers or equivalently uh, between the, uh, the ridges that separate them. So how did you set about trying to solve this conundrum? We first uh, put together a theoretical model that was based on some field observations we made. So we went uh, to a bunch of sites around the United States where we saw this pattern very well expressed, and we looked on the ground and, uh, to see what was happening there, shaping the landscape. And we ended up putting together a model that combines two basic processes that are competing against one another, that creates this even spacing of ridges and valleys. And what are those? And it, it's, it's a basic balance between one set of processes, uh, and chief among them is river incision into soil or rock, that tends to cut into the landscape and create valleys. That tends to make them spaced more closely together. But competing against river incision is soil creep, which is the gradual downslope movement of soil due mainly to stirring by organisms that are burrowing in the ground. And that tends to fill in the valleys, round off the ridge lines, and make them spaced more widely apart. So but why should they be so regular, though, Taylor? Well, why, why not just have a, a few here and there? Why this beautiful regular pattern we see? Well, there's an interesting story there, too, and uh, it actually has a bit of a Darwinian flavor to it. Uh, this is one of the, the, uh, the best parts of the, uh, the study for us. 
This is a pattern that emerges over many thousands of years, but by writing the equations to describe these erosion processes and solving them in a computer, we could fast forward the evolution of the landscape over those many thousands of years. And here's what we see happening. When a landscape first starts to form, the initial valleys that develop are unevenly spaced but some of them are a little bit larger than others, and some of them are further from their neighbors than others. And the ones that start out bigger or spaced further from their neighbors are able to capture more water and therefore erode more rapidly. And they grow faster, and they pinch out their smaller neighbors. And so it's this competition for water that ultimately leads to an even spacing. So presumably you can tweak your formula to accommodate the fact that some areas of Earth are drier, some are wetter, some have harder rocks, some have softer rocks, and all of those things will presumably affect this erosion competition that you've got going on. It's, it's exactly this that we're ultimately trying to get at. How do major factors like the type of rock that the landscape is made of, like the intensity of biological activity and uh, climatic effects like rainfall, influence this wavelength? And by comparing these different sites and also using the theoretical model to explore this, we have found that there are some pretty significant effects there. Uh, for example, if you have a landscape that's eroded into harder rock, the ridges and valleys will generally be spaced wider apart. And we also found that in places that are wetter, where they get uh, more mean annual rainfall, you also have a wider valley spacing. So there very definitely are some fundamental controls sure. on this pattern. So given that you've got this very old record of erosion and you can infer and you now know because of your formula how they form and over what sorts of rates, does this mean that written into the landscape is quite literally a record of past climate in the form of rainfall because of the erosion pattern? That's right. Uh, and that is one of the things that this pattern is, uh, is recording. The, uh, the challenge for us next is teasing out the relative importance of these different effects. So, for example, we know that rainfall has this, uh, has this effect of making uh, valleys spaced wider apart, but we're not exactly sure of uh, what the absolute magnitude of that effect is in a given place because it's kind of convolved with the bedrock strength and other factors. But ultimately, yes, there is a, a record here that we, we can start to interpret now. And just very briefly to finish, the last time I spoke with you, you were discovering why the coastline of an ancient ocean on Mars seemed to rise and fall by up to three kilometres in places. Does this work also inform those amazing, amazing rivers and valley type systems that we think we can see on Mars with Mars Express and the other things that are looking at the surface of Mars from, from space? I think it does. One of the, uh, the things that uh, first inspired us to look into this problem was not just observations of landscapes on Earth, but also images that we saw of Mars where you do see mind-bendingly regular patterns of uh, erosional features on the sides of impact craters all over the planet. And although the, the same exact processes are not at work, clearly the soil creep on Mars is not driven by biological activity, but more likely by, say, uh, the activity of ice in the ground, we think it's the same basic competition between valley cutting and valley filling processes that does it there. So one of the part of the appeal of this is that we can now go to landscapes either on Earth or on other planets where all we have is remote observations and start to learn something about how the landscape has developed over many years. So it's not just aliens then. Thank you very much, Taylor. <laughs> That's right. Dr. Thanks. Taylor Perron, he's a researcher at MIT in America. He's got a paper in this week's Nature explaining why we see those regular patterns of ridges and valleys forming across the landscape. Keeping you abreast of the world's best science, The Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientists with Dr Chris and with Dr Kat. Now, coming up, we'll be finding out how our rubbish can be used to make liquid fuel or turned into useful gases. But first, to kick off our recycling theme, we have a rubbish kitchen science for you. Ben and Dave have been raiding the bins like a pair of tramps to find out how to reuse newspapers. For today's kitchen science, we're going to be doing our own recycling. Dave, this is very eco-friendly of us, but what are we actually going to recycle? thought we'd recycle the easiest thing, really, which is paper. I guess before we get started, what is paper? What's it made of? Well, paper is basically made up of cellulose fibres. Normally these come from trees, although some papers, like papers from money, is made out of cotton. OK, so it's made out of these cellulose fibres, but how are they actually arranged? How do you turn those into a sheet of paper? Well, basically they're laid down 
into a sheet at random. So they're all in the same plane, but at random directions. They have very, very weak bonds between them, gluing them together, and they just stick together enough to make a sheet of paper. Okay, so that's what paper is, but what are we going to do to it today in order to recycle it? If you want to take a load of scrap paper, which is basically rubbish, and you want to turn it into new paper, the first thing you've got to do is split out all those fibres and suspend them in something like water. Okay, well, I've got some old printer paper that we've used to print some notes on and some newspaper, so can we combine these, or should you stick to one type of paper? No reason not to combine them. They do this all the time commercially. They'll mix different types of papers, different types of fibres together to get the right properties for your paper. So, yeah, let's do it as an experiment and see what happens. Okay, so the first thing you said we need to do is separate out all of these fibres. How should we go about doing that? Do we just need to tear it up? Tearing it up will help. We also want to weaken the bonds between the fibres, so put in some water. They tend to be hydrogen bonds and van der Waals bonds, and water will tend to disrupt those. So if we get the paper nice and wet, tear it up a bit, and then we need to really mash it and break up those fibres, so we'll chuck it in the blender. OK, a blender sounds like a very good way of separating this stuff out. Are you just going to put a whole handful of paper in the blender? Basically, I'm going to put maybe a couple of cups full of water into the blender, then add paper until it turns into a nice thick paste. Okay, well, I'll keep tearing. If you want to get your paper blended, then we should have two batches ready very soon. Well, I now have stained hands from all the newspaper, and Dave has a blender full of some kind of grey goo. Well, we now want to suspend those in water. At the moment, it's quite a thick paste, but we want to make it into a very, very thin, runny paste with not a too high density of fibres. Now we need to take out a load of these fibres in a nice thin fat layer. You want to be able to pick them up with something with lots of holes in it which will let water through but not fibres through. So something like a sieve? Yeah, what you really want is a flat sieve. If not, you want something a bit like this, which I've made earlier. It's basically an old pair of tights wrapped around a coat hanger to give them some support. So we've got a fine mesh which we can use to catch the paper. Excellent. Well, that certainly looks like a good filter for paper, and this is all very mixed up. So let's get some of this filtered through Dave's homemade tights. Just before we do that, we need somewhere to put it. I found an ideal thing to put it onto are J-cloths. They're really nice and smooth, so you get reasonably smooth paper at the end of it, and they're nice and absorbent, and you can then filter off the last of the water through them. Okay, so we'll lie out a J-cloth ready to take our paper once we've filtered it through some tights. And now Dave's just going to plunge the tights into our paper mixture and he's slowly lifting it out. Is this actually how they recycle paper then, Dave? It is a bit more complicated. They use chemicals to separate the fibres a bit better. They bleach it to make it whiter. And, of course, they do the whole thing on a much larger scale in a continuous process. So rather than using bits of tights, they'll have some kind of conveyor belt or some rollers. And all the processes happen continuously, and so you just get huge rolls at the end of a great big machine. I think that's drained mostly now, so let's just move it on to our J-cloth. So now we've got far too much water in there to make paper with. You're not going to be writing on this anytime soon, so you need to get more of this water out. So I'm going to fold the other half of the J-cloth over the top to form a sort of sandwich... And then we need to press it. So I'm going to take it outside. OK, so I've put the piece of paper in the J-cloth onto a piece of board on the floor. I'll just put a second board over the top. And we can see the water coming out from between the boards. There obviously was quite a lot of water left in that paper. Yes, it was a very wet, gloopy mess to start with, so you'd expect to be quite a lot of water coming out at this stage. So I'm basically just going to stand on this until it's squidged as much water as I can out of it. And basically just very carefully peel the top layer of the J-cloth off and leave it to dry. Now the paper's dried out. It looks a bit like this. Wow. And that's definitely paper. I mean, it doesn't look like writing paper. It doesn't look like printing paper. It's, it feels very rough as well. Most paper that you're buying feels a lot smoother. Is this just a consequence of the way that we've done it? Mostly, I think, it's a consequence of not having been squashed as hard as normal paper would be. They get some rollers with a huge force on them and actually squeeze everything really, really flat. But also with proper writing paper, they had all sorts of fillers and things to fill in the gaps, things like china clay. Now, speaking of writing paper, a very good acid test for this paper would be to see how well it handles being written on. So can we give it a go? I don't see why not. I'll get a marker pen. So marker pen in hand. Dave, why don't you write kitchen science and let's see how it comes out. I'm really impressed. I expected that that paper would just soak up the ink and it would become a big blur, but... It hasn't done that at all. Those are really nice, fine lines. You've made really very effective writing paper. 
think by the feel of it, it's probably near, near a card, but yes, it works remarkably well. <laughs> but now that you've written on it, can we recycle it again to turn it into another fresh blank sheet of paper? Yes, you could probably recycle this again, but you can only recycle a set of fibres maybe six or seven times because each time you recycle them, you blend them, you mash them up. That tends to make the fibres shorter and eventually get so short that the paper becomes very, very, very weak. Normally at this stage, you use it for something like toilet paper or tissue paper where the fact that it breaks apart is actually an advantage because you don't want it blocking up your toilet. And also you have the advantage that you really wouldn't want to recycle it after it's been used. No, that's true. I, I'm always worried when it says recycled toilet paper, but at least I know that it means recycled paper you use in the toilet, not paper that's been used already on somebody else's bum. Well, that's all we have for this week's Kitchen Science, where we've recycled paper in much the same way that they do for newspapers and industry, but just on a much smaller scale. We'll be back with another Kitchen Science next week. Well, that was Ben and Dave getting proactive with recycling and making their own paper from scrap paper and old newspapers. If you want to have a look at their paper, all the unusual things Dave likes to do with a pair of tights, then go to thenakedscientist.com slash kitchen science. Did you ever make some paper? I did when I was a kid, yeah. I used to really like doing it. I used to make logs. Paper logs? Yeah, when you get paper and you mush it up like they did, but then compress it into big sort of briquettes, and they burn really well, actually. Yeah. They're very light, though. They're not heavy like a lump of oak or pine that you're going to burn they're they're really light but they do burn pretty well not very attractive if anyone out there has any experience with recycling paper or if you've got any ideas for something you'd like the guys to test in our kitchen science uh, sections our email address is chris at the naked scientist.com this is the naked scientist with dr chris and with dr cat now one way to deal with rubbish is to use the right materials in the first place in other words things that we can reuse or recycle much more easily and dr john williams is at the polymers and materials uh, he's the Polymers and Materials Manager at the National Non-Food Crops Centre, where he works on understanding the whole life cycle, including things like recycling and then the disposal of materials when they're no good anymore. He's with us now. Hello, John. Hello, Chris. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. So first of all, define the problem for us, if you would. Uh, I mean, basically, I think what, you, what you're saying is that uh, we are using materials which we're doing without any thought for where they're going to end up in the long run. And we ought to perhaps work backwards and think of things that we could use, which we could do something sensible with again. Well, I think, yeah, absolutely. The, uh, the key thing here is, is where do we get the carbon from? And we've been very dependent over the last 70 or 80 years on fossil carbon. Everything we, practically everything we touch or make or energy fuel material-wise comes from fossil carbon. And we've been you know, easily sort of disposing of that fairly lazily without really any thought process. And I think recently now we've started to put climate change and so forth in and also recycling targets and so on. We just sometimes have to maybe take a little bit of a step back and say, whilst there are obviously valuable materials within our waste feedstocks, which we can take out like simple metals and so forth that we can we can use without any problem. Some of the others, perhaps we have to be a little bit cleverer with. So, for example, if you take, say, PET in bottles, we can recycle that and close loop recycle that back to, to itself several times before we then have a, other options as to how we have to deal with it. But the problem but, surely is that you've got to make sure that it's just bottles going into the mix. So that's in itself a difficult task to do because people will throw lots of things in because they don't know what PET is versus other kinds of bottle material. Exactly. I mean, there's been a lot of work on trying to identify sort of waste streams and trying to sort of transmit that to to the public at large to sort of do it. But it is a very difficult one sometimes. And sometimes you're going to have to actually take a a bit of a a leap forward and say, well, actually, we're going to have to deal with that in a much more centralised fashion and segregate that um, downstream. But you're still going to end up with a mass of material which either cannot be recycled that easily or is not energy efficient uh, to do so or environmentally beneficial to do so. So which should we just stop? using those materials and do what I saw when I was at Cambridge University's 800th anniversary garden party last weekend. Very nice. It didn't rain, which was amazing. Um, I had a plastic, or what I thought was a plastic cup, but it printed on the side of the cup was the words, this is biodegradable. It may look like plastic, but it's not. Well, exactly. That's certainly one option. And if we look at sort of non-fossil materials and use bio-based renewable materials, we can develop not only the the plastics and materials that we're currently so used to anyway, and in fact they're exactly the same, bio-based polyethylene is exactly the same as oil-based polyethylene, but we can actually also develop some perhaps slightly clever materials like polylactic acid, for example, and that's probably the one you saw, where we then have, when it comes to a downstream option, uh, we can compost it or we can take it through, for example, anaerobic 
anaerobic digestion and start generating renewable energy. So, you know, it's all about resource efficiency and the best use of carbon here. That's what we really have to start looking at and concentrating on. I met a lady when I was in Australia a few years back called Vina Sachwala, and she won a prize because she pointed out that people making iron, for example, from its ores have to add huge amounts of carbon in order to reduce the iron from iron oxide down to iron and make carbon dioxide in the process. And she said, well, why are we throwing all this plastic into landfill when we could throw plastic into a blast furnace? Because to be honest, at those kind of temperatures, it doesn't care whether it's charcoal, coal or other sources of carbon to get the carbon into the furnace. So is this something we could consider here in this country where we could say, right, what other processes need just a source of carbon and it doesn't actually matter what we start with? Well, I, I think that's right. The only thing you have to be slightly careful of is, is the source of the carbon, because obviously if it comes from uh, a fossil-derived carbon and you're venting, say, CO2 to the atmosphere, for example, uh, then you are obviously exacerbating the, the climate change scenario that we're trying to actually avoid. But the point is that stuff's going to go into the atmosphere anyway if it gets burned and gets burned and doesn't turn into anything useful, or it's going to go in a landfill and rot down over millions and millions or thousands of years probably, or go into the sea and turn into particles which will cause a problem there. So it's, so it's the, the lesser of all the evils, isn't it? Uh, to a point, yeah. I, I think you just have to look at, at timescales and uh, emission targets and so on. I mean, this is what... what the difference these days, I think, is that we're, we've been so used to a linear situation of feedstock all the way through to finished product, whatever that may be, to disposal, without really sort of connecting the disposal end back to, say, the feedstock end. And now that's what we've really got to start doing. So we've got to start doing that anyway. Um, but in, in, on top of that, we've also got to start looking at the fact that we're, we're obviously trying to mitigate g- greenhouse gases at the same time. Could we just look at the mechanics of how you would see something like this working? So if we take the average family who goes to the supermarket, they buy a fridge load of shopping, there will be multiple different containers made in multiple different materials. How do you see them actually being able to do their bit so that we can turn a lot of that stuff back into useful things that go back onto supermarket shelves or basically don't end up in landfills or going up as greenhouse gases? Well, I think we've seen a lot of work in recent years where, you know, albeit, you know, there is still a huge amount of confusion out there in terms of what bin you put what into. But um, the, the middle ground, if you like, for what the waste guys are now looking at in terms of processing, I think it's getting much cleverer than it was. I mean, it's, it's no longer the case of sort of just trying to pick these things out manually. You know, there's near-infrared, there's, there's laser technology, there's, there's flotation technology that pulls these mater- many of these materials out into usable and recognisable chains that you then have an option to do something with. Um, and the other work that, for instance, we're involved in is, for instance, if you look at food waste, which is a huge problem, it's all right sort of saying, well, we'll divert food waste away from landfill to say anaerobic digestion but a lot of that food is actually wrapped in something and you know you're not seriously asking the public to sort of unwrap every piece of food stock they actually get their hands on and try and dispose of that from a home-based situation so um you know if you say take a different view on that and say we'll use a a slightly different plastic or or a, a very different um plastic which will actually be compatible with with a disposal route you then start to get this whole circle thinking that we're actually trying to achieve. But John, this doesn't sound like rocket science. I don't mean that in a disparaging way to you. It sounds pretty simple, pretty logical thinking. So why is it not happening? Well, it is, it is happening in many cases. I mean, we're, we're involved in many projects and, 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 and the government are pushing this heavily. But, of course, what you've got is you've got crashing bits of legislation and you've got a little bit of inertia in the system as well. You know, we still have high landfill um, targets in this country, which we're obviously trying to bring down rapidly. But it does take time to, to move these things along. You know, it is a complicated system. And that's why sometimes you, I think you have to recognise that not everything can be recycled or is sensible to be, to be recycled. And, and that's really the way through we probably need to try and get out away from from other things which are a little bit uh, more obvious shall we say and start looking at things like gasification and pyrolysis or something like that which we're actually going to look at shortly later on in the program how we turn some of this rubbish into uh, gases that we can then burn and therefore extract a sort of second bit of energy from them before they end up as a greenhouse gas but this sort of brings us back to where we started which is that uh, how do we actually end up changing policy so we say instead of using material x to put your yoghurt in or to put your milk in, we need to use material Y because we know that we can do something better with that. How far away from actually influencing policy are we on, the, on this front? 
I think we're a lot closer than, than we were. If you, if, if you look at where we were a few years ago, there's really, you know, the, the connections, particularly in the material chain, were really a million miles away. And, a part, uh, and part of the reason for that was because everybody was concentrating to a large extent on fuel and energy. But when you actually then start to look at the, the material chain and say, well, actually, nearly all of that comes from fossil materials and a, a disparity, massive, huge amount of, of, of material choices that are in there that perhaps don't need to be in there, that we can perhaps uh, look at the chain a little bit better and valorize it better and, and actually really go to, go back to the market and say you know there's an incentive to take a material down a particular route and there's a disincentive to take the wrong material down down the route so uh, it, it's take, it takes some time but it's starting to happen so maybe one day you know, never know in an ideal world someone might pay me for what i throw away thank you very much that was dr john williams he's from the national non-food crops center and this is the naked scientist with dr chris and dr cat coming up we'll be finding out how we can actually produce useful energy from some of the waste and some of the other stuff we throw away lifting the lab coats on the world's best science the naked scientists Today on The Naked Scientist, we are talking about rubbish and my own personal solution for the rubbish and recycling crisis would be to clone my dad because he's an absolute recycling demon. Anything. He's the sort of person who'll stop a car. Does he recycle food? Uh, <laughs> not would recycling be extreme, food. It? Uh, but yeah, he's the sort of person who'll stop the car to pick up a tin can and put it in the back of the car for recycling. come to my village. We've got people who do the opposite. They, they drive past and they do a sort of garbage drive-by. They chuck out <laughs> stuff. Yeah, no, he's, he's the exact opposite. But anyway, turning waste into fuel rather than just recycling it would also be an ideal way to kill two birds with one stone, reducing the rubbish we send to landfill and also cutting our reliance on fossil fuels, which, as we all know, seem to be running out of pace. Now, we're going to talk now to Richard Kirkman. He's from Veolia Environmental Services, where they're finding different ways to get power from rubbish. Hi, Richard. Hi. So tell us about what you're doing uh, about trying to make recovered fuel uh, from rubbish. How does it work? Well, it's all about um, turning waste into the most useful resource we can. Um, So for liquid wastes, we uh, turn them into liquid fuels. And for solid wastes, we turn them into solid fuels. Um, what we do, we set up facilities that take in the rubbish and we extract all the recyclable components that we can and then the residual parts, which are not easily recyclable, are made into fuels which can go into cement kilns or power stations. And what sort of, what sort of waste are we talking about? Is everything equally you know, useful for fuel? What sort of things make the best fuels? Well, any waste that has an energy content, um, a calorific value that can be used in a, in a process to recover that energy into electricity or heat. So municipal waste can be used, commercial waste can be used, or industrial waste. And depending on what type of waste we have as an input, we can produce different types of fuels to different specifications to meet the industrial needs. Now, what, what can we actually use these fuels for? We're going to be hearing in a little while from Peter Jones, who's going to be talking about making uh, syngas, liquid, uh, making gases that we can use as fuels. But what about your solid and liquid fuels? Uh, could we stick them in a car? Um, they, they tend to be rather complex mixtures, and uh, therefore they're replacing oil, for example, in a cement kiln or a lime kiln, um, if it's a liquid waste, um, or if we're replacing coal with a solid waste uh, in, in a power station, for example. So um, a typical power station with a steam cycle to recover energy, we can replace that coal uh, with a fuel made from solid, um, from solid waste, such as municipal waste. Um, We can also put it into industrial processes or, as you said, in gasification or pyrolysis processes uh, if we produce a very specific waste stream. So if we were to recover non-recyclable plastics, that would be very easily gasified into a a gas that could be cleaned sufficiently to use it in a uh, turbine to produce energy, which is a very efficient way to recover energy. Now, it sounds like, you know, uh, it sounds fantastic we can make all this fuel from basically rubbish but how much energy does it actually take to make it because i know for example for recycling you need to put quite a lot of energy into the process to get recyclable glass and plastics out is it really going to be energy efficient to do this no that's right there there is a percentage of the energy recover used in the in the process to make the fuel um but we know from the way the, the waste hierarchy has been formed that we must always go above landfill as a final option Uh, so energy recovery by making fuels is always going to be of net benefit Um, typically if we had a hundred thousand tons of municipal waste we could send that to a facility where we might recover another 10 percent for recycling uh, and then the residual 90 percent would go into a fuel and this is going to be much more energy efficient than putting into a landfill 
Um, I, you can almost imagine a, a sort of an apocalyptic vision where people are stealing other people's rubbish to sell for fuel. <laughs> Is there some way we can we can actually commodify this and encourage people to maybe separate their waste or, or really, you know, stop just chucking stuff out of the window? Do you think that this has potential? Well, there are there are, it does have potential, and there's a lot of schemes springing up now where people are actually incentivised to uh, recycle their. Um, their rubbish, put it in the recycling bin, put it in the right container, and they'll receive a credit which they can then go and use in, in shops and, and to um, you know uh, in, incentivize them to do it further. How scalable is the fuel generation process? I mean, could could you imagine some kind of generator in each house or in a village where people just chuck their rubbish and it comes out with petrol the other end? Well, if you think back many years ago. Um, some people still call their refuse container dustbins and they were called dustbins because people used to burn all their refuse at home and they would just put the ash in the bins. This is not really a very efficient way to to do it because it means the emissions are uncontrolled from that um, burning of waste. So it's better to centralise the facilities. Then you can produce fuels that have a tight specification that that can be used in industrial processes where the emissions are controlled and we have net, net environmental benefits from that. It sounds absolutely brilliant. So when when are we going to start being able to have these fuels? Are they available already or is this something that's coming in the near future? We're moving very quickly along the road in the UK now. I mean, around 10 years ago, we were only sort of 8 10% materials recycled. The rest was landfilled. Today, we're recycling around 30 40% and a large proportion of the materials also being made into fuels. Um, if you look across Europe, there's probably about 5 million tonnes of uh, solid recovered fuel produced from wastes, and we're heading very quickly in that direction now. Uh, it sounds like the kind of thing that will make my dad very happy. Um, that's Richard Kirkman, and he's the head of technology at Vela Environmental Services, explaining to us how rubbish could be used as a source of energy. I like the idea of a municipal one, though, because Dave, on this programme, produced that story a little while back of this mobile bioethanol breeder, which uh, was like a wardrobe that you could put in your garage, and it was basically a fuel pump on the side, and you put all your rubbish from home into it, and it digested it, and then produced some alcohol from all the sugars it extracted, and then you could turn that into bioethanol. It's like having those home methane generators if you have cows or something, you know, shove the, uh, shove the poo in, get your gas out. Fantastic, thank you. This is The Naked Scientist with Dr Chris and Dr Cat. We're talking about recycling, we're talking about getting more bang for our buck from our garbage this week. Why are we throwing all this stuff away? A million tonnes a day goes into landfill in the UK. Much of it then turns into gases that, that actually contribute to global warming. Why are we doing that? Why aren't we trying to extract more energy from what we throw away? Why do we waste all this stuff? We'll be finding out in a second how we can produce syngas, synthesis gas. This is a mixture of hydrogen and carbon monoxide, which can be used to do things like fuel power stations. If you'd like to join in the debate, the email address is chris at com. From protons to photons and gluons to muons, the Naked Scientists. Science that's fundamentally more fun. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris and Kat, and you've heard so far about the options for making new materials from rubbish and even solid and liquid fuels. Well, another option is to use our waste as a base for making something called syngas, which stands for synthesis gas. This is a mixture of carbon monoxide and hydrogen, and you can use that to make things like diesel or methane or even polymers. And Peter Jones is a director of Waste Tutricity, and he's also an advisor on the London Waste Recycling Board. He's with us now. Hello, Peter. Hello there, Chris. So tell us about syngas. Why is this the new kid on the biological block that we love? Well, what we're seeing, basically, with the transition of these carbon molecules in our waste stream is a movement up a a hierarchy, if you like, to ever more sophisticated technologies. And economically, this is underpinned by the uh, rising landfill tax, which has gone from £7, and it's now effectively just short of £50 in uh, just around 10 years, and it's going to go up... 50 pounds what per tonne? Uh, I beg your pardon, 50 pounds per tonne. That's going to go up even further to uh, between 70 and 80 pounds per tonne by 2011. I presume that putting up the prices like that is making technologies like the one that you're advising on here actually much more deliverable because they become much more cost-effective. Absolutely. The other driver is the forward threat and possibility of either carbon taxation or carbon tradable permits, because what's happened in the last five years is that the whole waste debate is now being conflated in with the issues of renewable energy, global warming, 
and we're not uh, now really looking at waste as a problem that we've got to solve reactively in a fairly sort of um, embarrassed sort of fashion. We've got companies out there now that see this as a genuine opportunity, as you heard from John, John Williams, and in fact uh, the race is on really for a technology to demonstrate two core issues. First of all, the lowest carbon footprint from the collection, from the producer or the disposer of the waste, to its conversion into uh, either any form of energy, electricity, heat, steam, uh, transport fuel substitute, gas. Uh, That's the first thing, because in a world in 2015, 2020, where we may be paying Uh, based on carbon emissions, then you need that low carbon footprint. And the second key criteria that's emerging is that in the black box, whether it's a thermal process, uh, thermal oxidation or starved air thermal process, whether it's biological and it's aerobic in the presence of oxygen or anaerobic, uh, the conversion factor of the raw energy into energetic output, the so-called Uh, conversion efficiency of that technology has to be at the absolute maximum because the really financially attractive market is this market for electricity, gas, combined heat and power and so on. One of the points that uh, Kat made in the previous interview when she was talking to Richard was, you know, is this actually... Uh, environmentally beneficial because it's it's one thing to recycle all this stuff but if the lorry that comes to my house to collect my glass recycling bin actually ends up burning off more diesel than it costs to resynthesize all that glass in terms of how much greenhouse gases get emitted then it's great to be green but it's not actually being green the numbers don't add up so what are you doing to, to make sure the numbers add up with this technology i agree The first thing we have to do is make sure that before we come up with solutions, and I believe the waste industry really hasn't been very good at this in the past, in fact it's been absolutely rubbish, is that we've got to start really looking at what's called life cycle analysis of the whole process. Uh, the, 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 most people think that waste management is really about these technologies, whether it's incineration with a, um, you know, in the black box, so to speak, or these new innovative technologies, uh, recycling. But it's actually about not only the, the end process, it's also about the technology of the logistics of the trucks. Because uh, different technologies need different fuel feedstocks, and those different fuel feedstocks demand front-end collection systems that are different. Now, uh, I personally am an economist, and I spent my whole life in logistics and distribution, and there's currently a debate raging in the industry as to whether you collect and make it easy for disposers to mix their waste and then you take it to uh, a separation centre, usually a mechanical engineering-type process where, uh, as you've heard, you can use flotation, separation, uh, infrared uh, detection and so forth, or whether you, in fact, maximise the separation of material at the front end and then you run a blending operation, much like, um, uh, if you like, a bakery operation so that you blend fuels according to the needs of the different technologies that emerge. And certainly what I've been saying both in the, uh, in, uh, to, to the Mayor of London and the board there and also to the West Midlands, who've got a software package coming out now looking at this, uh, is, is that really what you have to do is look at the end market. Where are these carbon molecules that leave household, commercial and industrial dustbins, where are they going to command maximum economic value? And again, as you've heard, that's in electrical energy substitution, road fuels, gas, rather than possibly uh, selling recyclate plastics uh, when um, in, in unstable markets or selling composts as fertilizer substitutes. So the economics of the end market drive the decision around the technology. So could we just spend a couple of minutes and just talk a bit about the actual technologies themselves? So we've we've sort of mentioned this syngas concept, the idea of you get this this gas, which is a mixture of carbon monoxide and hydrogen, which is produced by digesting or doing various chemical modifications to waste. But how do we arrive at that syngas endpoint? What are the what are the techniques for making it? Fine. Uh, in terms of syngas specifically, syngas is mainly a mixture of hydrogen and carbon monoxide. Uh, the attractions of, of going to syngas 
is that uh, probably we will have uh, a strong operational base for hydrogen in 2020-2025. At the moment, we don't have that infrastructure in terms of uh, the necessary fuel cell technology and within that then, of course, the automotive market, which represents a pretty big prize. And uh, effectively, what you're talking about here is starved air baking uh, at high temperatures of carbon that's coming in, usually pre-selected. You don't want to heat up and bake waste that contains inert materials such as metals or aggregates because those just represent lost energy. And remember what I was saying about the overall thermal efficiency of the system. So you effectively, uh, much like the old gas plants um, that we had before North Sea gas arrived in the mid-late 60s in this country, uh, those plants baked at a lower temperature, and in those you ended up with town gas, which was a mixture of hydrogen, methane, and carbon monoxide. The great thing about that in the short run is that you can then take that to... Uh, you can burn it in a, a boiler. Uh, that's the preferred route at the moment in some countries. But if you, can take, if you can get the gasification to occur at a higher temperature, you knock out the TARs, which are a real problem byproduct. TARs are long-chain molecules that effectively will gum up your system. And that's why these syngases aren't put through internal combustion engines, because they effectively coke up. Uh, th so if you take the reaction temperature up through uh, plasma-type systems, a bit like the electric arc furnaces for melting mol um, recovered steel with an anode and a cathode at... You, you generate temperatures of the order of 2,000 degrees and you've got a, a fluidized bed in an air-starved atmosphere and you use a limestone flux together with um, a, 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 coke, a coke, a carbon base, to accelerate the reaction and then the tars deposit on the limestone, basically, and convert to a glassy slag. Which is obviously what you want because it doesn't end up gumming up your engine. Peter, we'll have to leave it there, but thank you very much for joining us. That's uh, Peter Jones, who's the director of Waste Tutricity, explaining how we could use rubbish to make syngas. This is The Naked Scientist with Dr Chris and Dr Cat. On the way is the answer to our question of the week, where we're asking, how does a pacemaker know how fast to make your heart beat? We're also talking about rubbish and recycling. So if you'd like to join us, the email address of the programme, chris at thenakedscientist.com. Laying the facts bare. I say. The Naked Scientists. It's The Naked Scientists with Chris and with Cat. Now, we're talking about rubbish and recycling this week. I've got a question for John Williams, one of our guests. John, uh, Ken Ellingson says, why are plastics not biodegradable? Why won't they break down when we chuck them in the ground? Um, well, I mean, traditionally, if, if you look at the, the, the materials we've produced from petrochemicals, then the majority of plastics need to actually be durable. Um, that's what they've been developed for, uh, maximum functionality. And there are one or two petro-derived plastics that are biodegradable very used in speciality sort of type situations like um, medical applications and so on. What's happened recently, of course, is that um, the, the drive towards some aspect of, of biodegradability as a function is quite useful if you're looking to uh, co-dispose of things which are also biodegradable, like food waste, for example. So the answer is you, you actually... you're. The, the important thing is you pick the material for its functionality um, in terms of what its end use is going to be rather than what its disposal route is going to be. But now, at the same time, you say, actually, if we, if we did say develop a biodegradable version of that, is that a useful way to go or not? We heard from Les in Over who says he saw a programme in which they sunk a borehole into a rubbish dump over in America. And within what they extracted through their borehole were pieces of newspaper that were 25 years old that remained readable. And he's saying if newspaper could sit in the ground for 25 years, what is the prospect for a plastic cup breaking down? Uh, well, for, for a start, let's just say we don't obviously want these things to go to landfill, um, for a start. Um, I mean, there are, if you look at the two systems of landfill at the moment, there are sort of dry sanitised landfills where actually not a lot breaks down at all, deliberately so. Um, and there are wetter landfills where you're actually trying to derive methane off, which is now obviously tapped off as an energy source. Now, the old landfills, you, he's quite right, you can actually sort of derive all sorts of material. Newspaper is actually the classic, but newspaper, you've got to bear in mind, actually has a quite a very, very high 
lignin content. It's not processed greatly in a papermaking process. So you've got a high lignin content there, and lignin doesn't break down at all. Hence, for instance, trees and branches and so forth that don't break down very well. It's exactly the same principle, but we've moved away from that now. Can I just ask you, in the context of what we've already dumped in the ground with landfill, um, what are people doing about, for instance, tapping off the methane that is being produced by the breakdown of that material that's in the ground? Is that common practice and is that being used effectively? I, I think actually it's increasingly common practice because obviously there's a there's a route now to actually deriving an energy source. Uh, um, not wishing to dodge the question, but I know Peter Jones actually knows an awful lot about this uh, in terms of landfill methane uh, tap off than than I, than I do. Well, should we ask him, Peter? Yeah. What do you think? Yes, there's uh, the, the theoretical uh, recovery rate on. Uh, a landfill of around one, two million cubic metres should be of the order of 60 to 70%. That's uh, effectively a figure arrived at by calculating what a mass, uh, a given mass of carbon would, would convert to. If, uh, but what you have to do is line those systems with a basal liner. You have to make sure, as you've heard from uh, John, that you've, you've effectively got plenty of liquid in that uh, landfill. Uh, and those bio, there it is a, a bioreactor that is capped, uh, but you will always get methane. This is the Betonoir of landfill. You always get methane formation within almost hours, certainly days, of waste being deposited on a face. Thank you, uh, Peter. Um, and one very quick question, which I guess uh, is is more sort of John's area. John in Colchester says, recycling of plastics in the future, would plastics which are meant for domestic containers be made more suitable for making good gases when they're finished with, unlike today's plastics that emit toxins, etc., when they're burnt? And if you could manage that in about 30 seconds, that would be great, John. Um, well, that's the driver. I mean, there's the, a the driver there anyway to do that, and that's where you see the decline of PVC in, in certain applications in the marketplace, which is one of the usual problems. But we are, we are deriving... Clear plastic streams which which will be a lot purer thank you very much right we'd better find out what's happening with our question of the week yes it's time to go to the naked scientist's own heartbreaker diana o'carroll <laughs> what have you got for us i wish well this week we do have a heart-stopping question hello my name is Xavier Marl oliver from india my question is how does an artificial pacemaker know how fast the heart should be. Well, Chris, what do you think? <laughs> I've got no idea. I think it's witchcraft. Because <laughs> it's amazing technology, isn't it, pacemakers? Um, I mean, what they're doing is sending an electrical signal to the heart to control its beating. I, I think the old generation of pacemakers used to beat at a defined rate, and if your heart out-accelerated it then it didn't actually matter. And it was there just to make sure that you didn't have heart failure because the heart was basically kept at pumping at a certain rate rather than slipping into its own intrinsic lower rhythm. I, th I think that would be my, my guess. But I don't know if there are more up-to-date equipment now that can sense. Yeah. Uh, how do they do it, Diana? Tell us. Well, let's listen to the model answer and find out. My name is Cathy Ross and I'm a cardiac nurse at the British Heart Foundation. The role of an artificial pacemaker is to monitor and control the heart's natural rhythm. They're implanted for many reasons, and the way they work will vary according to the reasons for which they're implanted. In the case of a slow heart rate, for example, a set number of beats per minute will be programmed into the pacemaker according to the needs of the patient. The pacemaker will then sense, through a number of wires, the number of beats that are being delivered naturally by the heart's own pacemaker, which is called the sinoatrial node, and it will only interject to deliver another beat if there is a shortfall so the pacemaker is there only for the reason for which it's been implanted so if it's a slow heart rate and you go running for a bus then the pacemaker will only interject if your heart rate falls below the required minimum level sometimes the doctors will put a maximum level on a pacemaker so for some abnormal heart rhythms that if the heart rate went too fast it could cause fainting or blackouts or possibly even a life-threatening rhythm then there may be an overriding upper level that the pacemaker will be set at but that's quite complex they tend to be implanted with internal defibrillators so they will be ones that are sensing for life-threatening rhythms so that the person can receive a shock if they require it 
So a pacemaker is essentially a sensor. It only tells your heart what to do if it drops below a certain threshold. So it's close. Well, yeah, basically, yeah. It's on the right lines. <laughs> or if it rises above a set limit, which is lucky. <laughs> and it's, ah, explosions. Anyway, over on our forum, RD found a lovely nugget of research in the form of headphone interference. And apparently playing music <laughs> through headphones, which are left dangling on one's chest, can influence the rate at which the pacemaker will beat, regardless of what your heart needs. I mean, does I wonder if it's like if you play techno, you're like... <laughs> yeah, but surely reggae would be the worst because you've got this sort of arrhythmia. Yeah. <laughs> Your heart would yeah. go too slow as it was. Or kind of very weird modern classical music that's very arrhythmic. What is it about iPod headphones? Because the paper was about iPod headphones. 30% of, pa- of yeah. patients actually had this pacemaker interference and there was that guy we reported on the Naked Scientist a while back who had um, got hit by lightning, lightning yeah, yeah, and used his guy. iPod headphones but as lightning conductors. They're not good for you, are they? But really. anyway, uh, next week we'll be finding out about another implant. This is Bruce Rogers of Milpitas, California. I've always wondered why tattoos didn't disappear over the years. So, how does a tattoo hang around for a lifetime, or even several in the case of mummies? Help us answer our question of the week by email, and that's chris at thenakedscientist.com, or you can use the forum, which is thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum. Thank you very much, Diana, with this week's question of the week, and thank you, because we've run out of time, to all our guests, Taylor Perrin, John Williams, Richard Copeman, and Peter Jones. Next week, it's our science Q&A show, so send in all your questions to chris at thenakedscientist.com. Have a great week. See you next time. The Naked Scientist podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.